Welcome to the Phase Space Invaders podcast, where we explore the future of computational biology and biophysics by interviewing researchers working on exciting transformative ideas. Today I'm talking to Max Bonomi, a group leader at Institut Pasteur in Paris, who has been deeply involved with some of the foundational tools and methods for molecular simulations and integrative biophysics. He was one of the key figures behind metadynamics and meta-inference, two widely used advanced simulation techniques that are reshaping our understanding of complex molecular systems. Max's work, particularly with the Plumed plugin, has also empowered researchers worldwide to modify molecular dynamic simulations with unprecedented ease and flexibility. On top of that, he is great at bringing the computational community together through workshops and conferences, and I have to credit him with inspiring me to start this very podcast after several wonderful meetings he co-organized last year. In the conversation, we exchange thoughts on the future application of AI models to structural data and how we will have to integrate experiments, deep learning approaches, and physics-based models to understand biology at a deeper level. We also discuss the questions of credit attribution in the various scientific undertakings from peer review to event organization to code documentation, trying to answer how we can ensure that every effort is valued in our scientific ecosystem. So without further ado, let's get started. Max Bonomi, welcome to the podcast. Uh, pleasure to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So for context, I got into, into molecular simulations in around early 2012, and uh, already then it felt like somehow your name was popping all around the place. So I remember working with Plumet very early on and uh, wrapping my head around all the different flavors of metadynamics. And then at some point came meta-inference. And so the whole field kind of shifted towards integrative ensemble modeling. And what I'm saying is, uh, from my perspective, these contributions definitely felt like a threshold moments for the community. Do you mind telling us what got you engaged in so many meta-level projects, so yeah. to say? Good, good question. So maybe the first thing I should mention is, is where all started, which is the development of Plumed. And this dates back to the time of my PhD in uh, ETH, in the group of uh, Michele Parinello, who was very active in the development uh, of metadynamics. It's a non-sampling technique to accelerate molecular dynamic simulation. And this was really a time of big excitement uh, in the development of a method, uh, in trying to apply it to different type of types of problems uh, in material science, in, in computational biophysics, biochemistry. But still, it was a method, and we had... Uh, different implementation of the methods in our research group. Uh, so there was multiple people re-implementing uh, metadynamics in different codes, NAMD, CP2K, for different types of application. And it was quite funny because each uh, of these people implemented their own set of uh, collective variables which are needed in metadynamics. Uh, so if you want to do something with a collective variable that is not in your code, you have to copy uh, the implementation from another code. It was all very, let's say, it was working, but it was quite inefficient. So we all start from there and tried, at least for us, for our mental health, <laughs> to have just a, a single unified implementation of the method of a collective variable that could work with multiple codes. 
to make in-house the development of the method much easier. And then, of course, this naturally uh, brought us to disseminate uh, this library to the public and to, to the community. And so this is where it all started uh, with the help of uh, other people like Giovanni Bussi and Carlo Camilloni and then Garrett Pribello, who are the core developers. And this is where it all started my, my interest in, in developing codes uh, and sharing them to the community. Uh, and then there is, as, as my as a switch from a PhD student to postdoc, and especially in the US, in the University of California, in San Francisco, with Andre Shali, there is where we, I start getting interested in approaches that go beyond simple molecular dynamic simulation, so just in silico, and try to incorporate different types of experimental data as an effective way to improve the force field of molecular dynamic simulations. And the problems there was, well, it's kind of uh, complicated uh, to incorporate uh, some measurements that reflect ensemble properties, not just one configuration, but the kind of full conformational landscape into simulation. And this is where we start developing uh, meta-inference and other Bayesian approaches to, to be able from average observation to determine the underlying conformational landscape. So that, that has been very short description and summary of, of what I've been doing so far with my group. I understand that once you have a tool, once you have a platform that makes it so easy to implement new things, it becomes very tempting, right? Exactly. Let's say what I do is always try to exploit and make the best usage of Plumed, which is extremely flexible, and it's just a way to kind of modify your, uh, your energy function, your force field in molecular dynamic simulation. And this modification can be anything. It can be a, a method to accelerate sampling, like metadynamics, or a modification to the force field to incorporate experimental data. But in the end, uh, the, the end of the day is always the same thing. You want to add external forces to your MD to do something. And so Plumed is built and is done for that. Right. I find it pretty amazing about our, let's say, simulation community that we somehow find ways to standardize the codes and to have things that are transferable. It's not the case with the QM community, for example. They always have their codes uh, divided into 50 different labs. And uh, it always makes me a bit reluctant to take up the codes. With coarse grain, is the same. Every lab seems to have their own coarse grain method and only they know how to use it. So I think this tendency to, to have platforms that allow for cross-communication between codes is, is amazing. I really appreciate your contribution there. Ah, thank you. I, th I think we could do even better because in, in any case, there's still things that are very code-specific. I think of uh, input files or trajectory formats that kind of maybe could be improved in the future. And I'm sure there are people discussing in the community how we can make uh, interoperability between MD codes, classical MD codes, even better. And I think that's something we can do still. Right, but already with the Bloom Nest initiative where you share the inputs and, uh, well, the transparency of it all, it's, it's a great uh, way of making things reproducible, replicable. Yeah, that was something that came not in the early days of Plumed, uh, but came at a certain point, the realization that there are a lot of people out there that are using the code after all, and they have their own uh, protocols and input files to do specific uh, tasks. And most of the time they, they are buried in a laptop or in a desktop and not share with the community. And people can learn from these things. 
maybe they want to do something very similar or be inspired. And it's very difficult to read the paper and find everything, all the details that you need to redo the same thing. It's much easier to file a link and that's it. That's your, your method. It's one line. Go to this GitHub and this is the method section of my paper instead of a list of not complete details. And so this was the idea behind Plume and Nest, just to share better what we do with Plume. Right. Maybe the next step is to train a chat GPT with Plume <laughs> to, to make it automatic. I agree. My dream is to create, to learn from this and create a, a, an assistance for Plume to debug problems and in the input files just by learning from good examples and help people in an automatic way. That's my dream, yes. That would be amazing. But so let's shift from archaeology to, to futurism. So which new stuff gets you the most excited about the future of the field? And uh, what are the revolutions that, you know, you see them coming and you just can't wait for them to happen? Yeah, so it's very difficult to answer to this question because working, let's say, try to work in close contact with experimentalists. I'm not an experimentalist, but in my research, I try to incorporate and use data. I'm kind of also fascinated by what's coming from their area. I would start with the, with the obvious that what artificial intelligence is revealing us that can do is kind of uh, extremely exciting. It's very difficult, I think, to understand what is the limit now of what it can do, uh, uh, because we have seen already we have we have this uh, alpha fold and family revolution, in which at least the prediction and the creation of a model, a single structure model of a biological system of proteins, is there. And in many cases, is is extremely accurate. But we have also seen that maybe there's something more in these methods. They just maybe are able to capture certain parts of a conformational landscape of proteins, not just one single structure, not just a global minimum. But maybe they learn something more about the proteins. And we have seen modification of this method to create alternative states and so on and so forth. So I'm sure that that what will happen next, most likely, is in this direction. Is try to, I'm not saying replace in molecular dynamics, maybe yes, maybe no, but try to really be able with this method to characterize better, more exhaustively, conformational landscapes rather than single, uh, single structure. And the challenge there, of course, is not just uh, giving a model of state A and state B, which is part of a problem, but also understanding what is the population of, of the state A and uh, state B, how the system goes from A to B. So it's a way much more complex uh, uh, problem. But I think this is the direction of this method where it can, in, in the next, I don't know when it will happen, maybe in two years, maybe in five years, but they will be able also to provide this information. I'm pretty sure. Uh, there are already first attempts in, either to use this AI method as a sampler, but in the end you get what molecular dynamics would give you just in a way more efficient way. That's probably is, is a, let's say, low-hanging fruit. And we have seen some, some efforts from the community. But maybe we will be able to do it regardless of, of MD Forstfield, be able to learn from some type of experimental data of other information, also information about thermodynamics, so that the output of this method would be not just structure, but also population and maybe 
interconversion pathways, so on and so forth. And this for me would be, would be fantastic because it's all the pieces of the puzzles. You have structure, you have thermodynamics, you have kinetics, and done in a way more efficient way, possibly in a more accurate way than molecular dynamics simulations. And this is what I'm excited, mostly excited for. So, so far we've seen, uh, as you say, minimum energy structures predicted very easily, but the concept of thermodynamics is surprisingly hard to learn, right? And maybe it's not so surprising if we think about what data is out there. We don't have many data of higher energy conformers with that energy, right? True. No, no. That is the challenge. And so to see if uh, there would be new experiment that can provide high throughput in kind of consistent conditions, information and data that, that we can use for training. I guess we have all realized that one of the key requirements for this method to work well is the quality and quantity of the, of the data used for the training. And if the information is there, and maybe we will, uh, we will need to, to have more of this information to be able to have a good uh, artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning, whatever methods. Right. And do you see it, for example, learning from actual molecular dynamic simulations where you have a better access to energies, free energies? Of course, you have the errors of the force field, but perhaps you can somehow leverage both. That I think that could be already a big achievement to be able to do MD without doing MD. So have a sample of a conformational landscape consistent with a molecular mechanics force field using my laptop in one hour instead of using supercomputers. And of course, the limit is always the underlying force field. But we know that there are methods, and I've contributed, and many other people have contributed to the field to refine this conformational ensemble using experimental data. So that could be the first goal, the first milestone is getting there. Then we have replaced a tool like MD, at least for kind of thermodynamics, providing thermodynamics characterization. We have replaced it with a way more efficient tool but with the same accuracy of MD. Plus you incorporate data and you refine the, the thing. The second, third milestone would be, well, doing from the beginning better than molecular dynamics. But probably this will require additional data to train these models. It's along the way, but probably is a bit farther away. Yes, I think we have to recognize and really think hard of the strength of each field, right? The uh, uh, experimental field in giving us the grand truth, the MD sure. field in, let's say, showing us the energetics and uh, higher energy structures, like thermodynamics, and then AI being Correct. able to generalize from that. Exactly. That would be exactly. amazing if we can see more, more research, more great tools coming out from that. I agree. I agree. And if I, if I can add one comment, then there is all the part of the, of the actually structural biology experiments. Again, there are other revolutions happening there that I see from, uh, I'm not inside, let's say, but it affects my life and my research. And then it's clear where we are going uh, with a higher resolution in better environment in cell with tomography. It's amazing uh, how we can look at things really where it matters, which is in the cells and, and improving resolution every year. So it's what cryo-EM Revolution has been in the past, uh, I don't know, five, 10 years. Now we are, we are serving and we will add that in the cell. And that's, this for me that I work in strict collaboration with experimentalists is as exciting as artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, that's great to hear because that was also one of the messages from Pilar, who said that uh, yeah. she's also thinking and working in the direction of helping people from the in-situ cryo-EM community. So yeah, seems you're converging on this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super exciting. That's great to hear yeah. that there's a clear direction there uh, where people are excited. And moving on to the next part, how do you yep. see or what do you think is the thing that we're not doing well enough as a community? What Where could we put more stress in our scientific lives, in our values, practices? Uh, this is complicated to answer to this. A again, there are many things in very different domains, more technical and more related to personal qualities. Let's say there is, uh, I think, all the class of uh, activities that we do for the community, I would say almost services to the community, but I feel they are not uh, as well regarded as other things because they are not as measurable as the number of papers or the H index or whatever, all these old style matrix that we use to evaluate researchers. And all the soft thing that we do to, I don't know, developing tutorials for our software or, or teaching in, in schools uh, and the software development itself, which is very collaborative. No, we have now take the case of Plume. We are four core developers, but we have uh, important contribution for the community. And so these sometimes are written by a PhD student, which is not fully recognized for his contribution to open source software. Or maybe they are preparing tutorials uh, to put online. Uh, and this is fundamental for a computational uh, biologist and chemist. And it, it's what makes the life of all the community much easier. And I think it should be valued much more when evaluating uh, things and, and thinking of a researcher set of skills. And we are, we are trying to, to do our best in this, in this field and, and in doing as many outreach as possible because we believe in it and we do it without thinking uh, uh, of a reward, uh, because we have fun also <laughs> among us. But I think there should be a much clearer reward in this type of services to the community, especially for early career researchers. Right. One thing I think is great about the scientific community is that we have so many people who are you know, intrinsically driven. So people just do things because they love it. But as you say, it yeah. often benefits, it often benefits the people at the top while the people at the bottom are working without much recognition. So I also I, see that. I agree. I also see that people are now publishing uh, tutorials, publishing many accessory tools. So maybe this is improving, even if it's published as a preprint, but it's citable. I agree. But we should find a way to really make this, this contribution recognizable as an article can be, as an invited presentation to a conference can be. So we should start opening our mind that is uh, the product of what we do is not just uh, papers and talks and whatever, and it's much larger, our activities, and all of these should be valued uh, almost equally. Right. I think that the typical problem of that is that there is this famous paradox where whenever you put a numerical measure on something, it stops being a good measure of productivity, right? I don't remember the name of the paradox, but Me neither. it was a famous thing that whenever you start measuring someone's contribution by a deterministic number, people are just finding ways to abuse or maximize this number without contributing the work. So 
I don't know if you should have another AI social score for scientists or. I, I don't know what is the solution to, be, to this problem. We are kind of uh, attached to this matrix for kind of simplicity to see a number and judge based on the number, but I think we should move on and we are probably moving on already from this old way of doing things. One thing I'm thinking of is that science used to be perhaps much more about the community back in the day. And these days we have so many new scientists, which is a great thing, but it also makes science perhaps much more anonymous or you know, disconnected from smaller communities. So it's harder to know who does what. You have to somehow rely on some proxies, right? True. No, no. Yeah, I, I see what you... But overall, it's a good thing, no? That yes. We have a, a large bodies of, of scientists contributing because there are the, the way to do these collaborative efforts. There are the platforms, the software, the, the infrastructure to be collaborative. And these open up contributions, of course. So this, I think, is my main point. Yeah, I've seen efforts to kind of remove the gatekeeping of science to make it, uh, to make a point that scientists are, you know, computational scientists, but also business scientists, technical scientists, and, uh, public outreach scientists, right? And we have many branches which have very different structures of reward, very different communities. It is true, but in the, in the end, many of us do a little bit of everything. <laughs> Um, so, so it's very difficult to, to have a label, you do outreach and that's it. Of course, there are people doing most that or in a professional way, more professional way. Uh, but sometimes group leaders or researchers in general, uh, need to do a little bit of everything in their limited time available. Right. I think it's fine to have activities that don't necessarily increase your chances of getting the grant, right? But make you more visible in the community, make more connections, and in the end, make the field a better place. I agree. But I think sometimes I'm thinking, as you said, for people who are starting doing this job and maybe they don't have a permanent position yet. And so it's especially important for them if they dedicate their time to this type of activities to be fully recognized because it's very important. I agree. There were some steps even to recognize, for example, reviewing, right? And now if you review for big journals, you get recognition from Publons or any other platform. So I think that's a great step in that direction. I agree. Yeah, sorry, just to, sp to specify one thing. The problem sometimes there is that this could be very important at, at the early stage of careers, to have this recognized, but you see sometimes the editor said, no, this is too young and it's just a postdoc, let's say, let's assign the review to somebody else. So we should also change a little bit uh, this uh, scheme that I want the super famous uh, uh, PI uh, to review this paper in maybe four months. Uh, and uh, he doesn't care about the recognition of this thing because he has other recognition. So we should change also this, this schema and make it a bit more horizontal, the review process across career stages. Yes, maybe we could start with actually identifying all those things, all those fields in which people contribute and have some sort of, as we have now recognition for reviews, we could have also recognition for all the other fields. And then the next step would be probably to make it a consideration when signing grants or any other evaluation, right? To, to broaden it up to, sure. 
input more activities. That's a great, that's a great idea. And I think we should be going there. I agree 100%. Okay. So if that's it, if there's nothing else to say, then thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thank you for a great ideas. It was a pleasure to, to discuss with you. Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Max Bonami. And I, I hope you all the best for this podcast series. It's a, it's a great idea. Thank you. Uh, yes. I will keep inviting great scientists like you. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, that's too much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. See you in the next episode of Face Space Invaders.